gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero, Superman. Superman. The Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, Golden Age Superman, The Superman Fan Podcast, Superman in the Bronze Age, From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. I've got a few things to say about Superman, The Superman Vidcast, The World's Best Podcast, and Radio KL from supermanhomepage.com, as well as the audio dramas Superman, Last Son of Krypton, and Supergirl, Last Daughter of Krypton from Pendant Audio Production. Join hosts Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer, J. David Weeder, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner, Cayman Stoll, I'm Isaac, I'm Adam, Dave Yunus, and co-host Scotty V. at supermanpodcastnetwork.com Rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton, Kal-El came to Earth, whose environment gave him fantastic powers. In Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil the world over as Superman. Superman. Hello, and welcome to the landmark 50th episode of Superman in the Bronze Age. I am your mild-mannered host, Charlie Niemeyer, and today I present to you a new Superman in the Bronze Age. And in true Bronze Age fashion, that does not involve restarting with a new number one. But before I get into that, uh, first I've got some thank yous I want to dish out. Uh, First, I want to thank Billy Hogan, John Wilson, Michael Bradley, Michael Bailey, and Jeffrey Taylor for allowing me to present an episode of their shows while this show was being retooled. I'd also like to uh, send out a thank you to J. David Weeder, who not only provided me with the web space and server space for the new website and the show, but also did a lot of the work behind the scenes to help me get things set up, as I'm not really familiar with XML or HTML at all. I should also point out that while he's no longer going to be my regular co-host, he's still going to be a regular part of this show, and I'll get more into that in just a little bit. But first of all, this brings me to the relaunch of Superman of the Bronze Age. Basically, starting with this month, each month will have a special theme, and then I'm going to pick random Bronze Age Superman comics that fit that theme. The cool part is that I'm no longer limiting things to just Superman in Action Comics. So you're going to hear me covering some of the other satellite books such as Justice League and Lois Lane and Jimmy Olsen and Superman Family and Supergirl and World's Finest and more. Uh, I probably won't cover much Superboy though because of my other announcement. Now, back in the Bronze Age, of course, it was common for comics to have a main feature and a backup feature, as you've probably noticed if you've listened to any previous episodes of this show. And this podcast is no longer going to be any different than that. Uh, the aforementioned Mr. Weeder will now be hosting a new backup feature called Superboy in the Bronze Age, but I'm not going to go into it too much. I'm going to let him tell you more about it a little bit later. As for the main portion of this show, which is the part 
I'm responsible for. This month is Secret Origin Month. After all, what better way to start a relaunch than with the retelling of Superman's origin? So, uh, after a couple of podcast promos, I'll be right back. Superman of the Bronze Age will be back after these messages. Do you enjoy time travel in general, and the Silver Age of comic books in particular? If so, join me each week on the Superman Fan Podcast. My name is Billy Hogan, and I will be your host. Together, we'll crash through the time barrier and fly into the past to explore the Silver Age adventures of Superman. One week, we will take a look at the Superman family of titles, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, World's Finest Comics, and soon... Superman's girlfriend, Lois Lane. The next week, we will feature the Man of Steel's titles, Superman and Action Comics, which will include the Supergirl stories during her run in the back of that title. You can join me each week on Wednesday or Thursday at the supermanfanpodcast.blogspot.com, which is available on iTunes. And your emails are always welcome at supermanfanpodcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to wear your red indestructible cape. You are cordially invited to attend a podcast that observes the unfolding events of history. Come with me and observe the birth and growth of a legend. From the pages of a 10-cent pulp comic book to the newspapers, radio program adventures, theatrical films, and more. Witness the dawn of the superhero. Superman. Available on iTunes and at goldenagesuperman.libsyn.com Every legend has a beginning. In a world where planets die. I have come to the conclusion Krypton is doomed. Did I hear him right? Where good and evil fight a never-ending battle. But millions of people will die. Millions! Once again, the press underestimates me. One man will become a hero. Every world needs its heroes, Clark. They inspire us to be better than we are. And they protect us from the darkness that's just around the corner. One man will rise to the challenge. What man will wear spandex? Well, one thing's for sure, nobody's going to be looking at your face. Mom? <laughs> well, they don't call them tights for nothing. <laughs> Presenting the thrilling adventures of Superman. 
podcast looking at the Man of Steel's history via his earliest adventures in comics, radio, and film. Featuring reviews, commentary, creator spotlights, and more. Join the adventure at GreatCrypton.com. The funeral is over. Jonathan Kent is on the mend. So, uh, how's Clark's father? Oh, much, much better. Lois has returned home. Lois, over here! Harry, why? Since when did you start meeting your staff at the airport? How'd you know I was returning on that flight? A good editor checks out his hunches, Lois. I got a hot story of one to one straight away. I'm parked over here. But just as Metropolis has learned to live without the Man of Steel... I know, there was only one Superman, but Metropolis just hit the jackpot. Because we got four Supermen now, and nobody knows which of them, if any, is the real McCoy. Four beings of incredible power and intellect have laid claim to the Man of Steel's name. The last son of Krypton. I live. The Man of Steel. Man of Steel coming through. Nobody move. This is a bust. The Cyborg. Yes, I'm Superman. I'm back. The Boy of Steel. Put me down. Listen, pal, don't ever call me Superboy. Capiche? The reign of the Superman is upon us, and so from crisis to crisis, a Superman podcast begins its epic coverage of this last act in the epic death and return of Superman saga. Every week, Michael Bailey and Jeffrey Taylor, along with the best and the brightest in the podcasting community, will cover this event in all of its forms, from the comics to the novelizations, to the audio drama, and beyond. Superman is back, but is any of them the real Man of Steel? Find out on From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, located at www.supermanhomepage.com and www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. We now return to Superman and the Bronze Age. For our first comic this month, I present to you The Amazing World of Superman, Metropolis Edition. Now, this episode should be out just in time for the 34th annual Superman Celebration in Metropolis, Illinois. Also, this year, which is 2012, marks 40 years since DC Comics gave the city permission to be known as the hometown of Superman. As part of this celebration, DC Comics put together this special tabloid-sized issue way back in 1972 to help celebrate. Inside are several articles and comic pages all about Superman and Metropolis, Illinois. Now, first up in this issue is the story Superman in Superman Land. Now, I don't usually cover stories from other eras of the show, and specifically this is from the 
Silver Age. But I'm going to make an exception here because of how it ties in with this issue and the city of Metropolis. So, Superman in Superman Land was written by Bill Finger, penciled by Wayne Boring, and inked by Stan Kay, and is reprinted from Action Comics 210, which had a November 1955 cover date. Now, one day, in many American homes, many youngsters awaken their sleepy parents at dawn. For today is the grand opening of Superman Land, an amusement park dedicated to the greatest of all heroes, Superman. Greeting them at the entrance is a giant Superman statue, welcoming everyone to the park. And the first stop on our tour is the Rocket Room, where you can take a rocket trip to Superman's home world of Krypton. Makes sense. Uh, next up is the Daily Planet, where you can see wax statues of Superman's friends Lois Lane, Jimmy Olsen, Perry White, and Clark Kent. Also, you can purchase a special issue of the Daily Planet with your very own name in the headline. Inside the fake Daily Planet, we catch up with the real Clark, Lois, and Jimmy, who are, on, who are on hand to cover the opening of the park for the Daily Planet. Next, they plan to check out the Superman Superpowers Building, where visitors can recreate Superman's powers using objects made of paper mache. So you get to sque squish your own gun and lift a thousand pound uh, dumbbell, that kind of thing, you know. Uh, there are also... Uh, Superman cutouts so that the kids, well specifically the kids, but basically any visitor, can stand behind and have their picture taken looking very much like Superman. Now Lois offers to have Clark's picture taken without his hat as one of her ways to prove that he's really Superman, but Clark cleverly avoids the problem by putting his hat back on just as the photographer clicks his shutter. After all, it's chilly, and he catches cold so very easily. Next up, while Lois is using a display that recreates Superman's X-ray vision, Clark's using his actual X-ray vision and super hearing to eavesdrop on a couple of guys who are worried about disappointing kids due to the delivery of a steel Superman dummy being delayed. So, using super ventriloquism, yay, Clark calls attention to Lois and Jimmy, and while all the visitors clamor for their autographs, Clark slips out and changes to Superman. Shortly, the Superman target range opens up, where kids can apparently fire bullets, arrows, and missiles. Small missiles, of course, but still, missiles. At the steel replica of Superman, which we actually find out is the real Man of Steel himself, helping out until the steel dummy is delivered. Later, after Clark catches up with Lois and Jimmy, we see a mysterious bearded man with a box enter the Superman Cartoon Festival Theater and watch Superman cartoons that look a lot like Wayne Boring recreations of the Mechanical Monster and Arctic Giant shorts from back in the 40s. While watching these cartoons, the mysterious man thinks to himself that he can stop Superman permanently with what he has in his box. Meanwhile, oblivious to this evil plot, Clark, Lois, and Jimmy are at Superman's Hall of Trophies, which is basically the gift shop. And they're marveling at the man carving kids' names into fake pieces of kryptonite using a pen filled with nitric acid. Remember this, because it comes in handy later. Next, they visit the Superman Land Post Office, where visitors can get envelopes that come complete with special stamps and cancellations commemorating the opening of the park. However, once again, X-ray vision and super hearing alert Clark to another emergency. Apparently, the post office has been so inundated with envelopes that it's going to take days to sort through it all, which will delay the mail and disappoint the kids, which sounds like bad planning to me, but, you know, whatever. 
But don't worry, folks. Clark's got a foolproof plan, which I will promptly poke holes in in my notes. As the three reporters make their way past the Superman merry-go-round, which looks like a regular merry-go-round, but you ride on a Superman instead of a horse, and you can insert your own kind of euphemism here if you so desire, Clark says it looks exciting and that he'd like to try a ride. So after disappearing into the crowd, Clark changes to Superman, flies to the Daily Planet exhibit at super speed, grabs the Clark Kent wax statue, which I should point out won't be missed because apparently one group of visitors is just leaving the exhibit room and the next group isn't supposed to show up for about five more minutes. He places the statue on one of the Superman on the merry-go-round and then flies over to the post office. And once there, he moves at super speed, stamping the envelopes and sorting them as only Superman can. Then, faster than the eye can follow, he flies back to the merry-go-round gets the statue, returns it, gets back to the merry-go-round just in time for the ride to finish. Now Clark then tells Lois that she should go for a ride, but her response is basically, why should I bother with... I'm sorry, I didn't mean to make her English. Why should I bother with a merry-go-round when I'm used to the real thing? Which makes Lois sound snarkier than it's probably intended, but it's just the way it kind of comes off. Next, we once again see this bearded stranger noting that it's almost 5 o'clock, and that Superman has an appointment to keep. An appointment with the greatest danger he has ever faced. (laughs) Meanwhile, Clark also realizes that Superman has an appointment to keep, and needs a way to ditch Lois and Jimmy. But have no fear, folks. Clark has yet another foolproof plan. See, he tells Lois that he's going to interview the director of the Explosion of Krypton Spectacle, But she stops him because Perry promised her that story, and she's going to go get it right now. And of course, Jimmy follows along to learn some pointers. Now this leaves Clark free to switch to Superman and show up at the Hall of Trophies, where he autographs the fake kryptonite with his heat vision. But when all the visitors have left, and Superman is left alone, the bearded stranger shows up and shows Superman his box which actually contains real kryptonite. And while Superman starts getting weaker and weaker, the stranger removes his fake beard to reveal that he is, in fact, Luthor. (laughs) Meanwhile, Lois and Jimmy are talking to the director, who is telling them about how the papier-mâché model of Krypton is rigged to explode and showing the jet-powered rocket that will take off into space, just like the rocket that brought the Superbaby to Earth. Meanwhile, some time has passed. Copyright Michael Bradley and The Thrilling Adventures of Superman. And Luther carries the weakened Superman to the rocket with the kryptonite tied around the Man of Steel's hands. It's connected to a chain. Luther's plot is that Superman will be left to live out the rest of his days drifting in space with the kryptonite leaving him too weak to save himself. Because I guess by this point in the Silver Age, they weren't allowed to actually kill so instead of dying, Superman's just weak and helpless thanks to the kryptonite, I guess. Again, some time has passed, and it is now time for the main event to begin. While Lois wonders where Clark is, the visitors watch in amazement as Krypton begins to rumble. They then witness the rocket as it shoots off into space just before the papier-mâché planet explodes with a boom that's really not that big. As Luther watches the rocket zoom off into space, a steel bar is twisted around his wrists by none other than the Man of Steel himself, Superman. 
See, Superman started to feel the effects of the kryptonite as Luther was opening his box, which apparently gave Superman enough time to grab the pin that was filled with nitric acid and slide it up the sleeve of his costume before the kryptonite made him completely helpless. Then, after Luther placed him in the rocket, Superman broke the pin, using strength that he somehow had, and let the acid slowly eat through the metal chain that the kryptonite was attached to. With the rocket slanted on takeoff, the kryptonite rolled down to the other end of the main compartment, which was far enough away for Superman to regain enough of his strength to smash his way out. So after depositing Luther in prison yet again, Superman switches back to Clark and meets up with Lois and Jimmy in time for them to leave the park. As they drive off, Lois is left slightly disappointed because after spending a whole day in Superman land, she never got to see Superman in person. This story was first written after Walt Disney's Disneyland became a popular attraction in California. The idea was that this story would spark enough interest to warrant the creation of a Superman-themed amusement park somewhere in the United States. And to be honest, for the most part, the attractions that they showcase in this story seem to be possible, even using the technology of that time. So it seems realistic to build a park based on this story. However, Obviously, that never worked out. Now, part of the reason that this story was reprinted here is that there were plans to build a Superman park called Amazing World of Superman. See how that ties in with the title of the issue? In Metropolis, Illinois, now that the city was allowed to refer to itself as Superman's hometown. In fact, Neil Adams was even commissioned to draw up some designs for the attractions at the park, some of which were actually ripped from this story, plus there are extra things related to Smallville and the Fortress of Solitude that hadn't quite made it to the comics by that point, although Smallville, I guess, had, it just, you know, they obviously wouldn't have known about that stuff for the park in continuity. However, these plans were done up in 72 or 73, which was, of course, during the energy crisis, you may have heard of it, and since the nearest airport is a couple of hours away, even today, and people just could not afford to do much driving at the time, which hurt tourism everywhere. Plans were pretty much scrapped. Or as Julie Schwartz once was quoted, the project was put on hold. It's still on hold. As for the story itself, on page one, I like the designs that Boring used for the structures. It's got a very retro 50s feel, which makes sense considering when the issue was done, but it also really looks cool. It's kind of got the uh, science fiction-y thing, since that was the big era for the B-movie science fiction stuff. Page 3, we see the kids in the rocket, and while I know the helmets and stuff look cheesy, the idea of using 3D technology along with more practical stuff like blasts from air vents and vibrating seats make the rocket ride seem real. And I can definitely imagine being in a ride like that. I remember going to Disney World as a kid. Uh, before they had their current Mission to Mars, they had a different version of Mission to Mars, which was basically you go in this big room, you sit down in a chair, you look at the monitor. That's both. There's a monitor, I think, on the ceiling and one that was on the floor, so you could see Earth leave, and you could look up and see space and Mars come at you. And that wasn't 3D, but the seats, I don't remember air vents, but the seats did rattle to indicate, you know, we're on liftoff, so everything was shaking. And 
Unfortunately, to signify weightlessness, the back of the seat lifted up a little bit, which makes no sense, but whatever. So I could see this being used, obviously. It makes perfect sense. So I think it would have been a cool idea. I would love to see that even today. Uh, page four. Of course Lois would be concerned that her wax statue looks a little heavy, enough so that she's pondering going on a diet herself. I mean, come on. And it's really weird. The Lois statue has this really shocked look on its face, and the real Lois has the same shocked look on her face looking at the statue. It's kind of weird. Also on the same page, we get to see the Silver Age cliche of Lois trying to prove that Clark is Superman, so we can check that one off. Page 5, it hasn't come up much on this show, but I hate super ventriloquism. It just seems like a lazy superpower created by a writer that wrote himself into a corner and couldn't figure out any other way to get out of the trap. Um, however, this page does have a really cool shirt rip. Um, not super cool and not the awesomest one you've ever seen, but it does look pretty cool. Pages 5 and 6, it looks like they're letting these kids shoot Superman with live ammo. Um, no. As if bullets and arrows aren't bad enough, the first panel of page 6 literally shows a little missile bouncing off of Superman's chest. So apparently they're using shotguns, bows, and missile launchers to shoot at Superman. I'm thinking that would have been one of the things that probably would not have passed the safety inspection if this park was really built. Just saying. Speaking of which, uh, these kids have some really good aim, though, because all of them are hitting Superman in the S and nowhere else. Which, I know for me as a child, led me to believe that the only place that Superman couldn't be hurt was the S. So, even to this day, seeing a little thing like in Superman Returns where the bullet bounces off his eye is pretty cool. Page 6 by itself. Panel 3. This is where we see the bearded stranger, who we now know as Luther, enter the Superman Cartoon Festival. But under it, it says it's 30 minutes of Superman cartoons. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I do not think of 30 minutes of cartoons as a festival. That's pretty much a show. 30 hours might be a festival, but not 30 minutes. And it's really cool, I thought, that the cartoons look like the old Fleischer cartoons. Um, granted, Wayne Boring's drawing them, so they look more Wayne Boring-ish than the actual Fleischer cartoons, but, I mean... The first one, you see the di uh, the dinosaur, which reminds me of the Arctic Giant, and the next one, he's fighting a bunch of robots, which... mechanical monsters, hello. So it seems to make sense. Uh, I do have to wonder how anyone could get into the park with real kryptonite. Of course, this is from someone who didn't start going to, the, to a, a amusement park until the 1980s, because I wasn't born until 1980. So maybe security would have been different back then. But I would think that, you know, security would check all packages being brought in. Then again, this is Lex Luthor, so the idea of him actually paying to buy a ticket to get into this place is probably pretty far-fetched. He probably snuck in somehow. Probably had a device to allow him to walk through a wall or something. You know, Lex. It's not really mentioned, but still.
Page 7, another kick to realism's gonads, a pen full of nitric acid. Now, did anyone else hear Chekhov's gun being cocked when I pointed it out earlier? Which I guess was kind of... point. Anyway, page 8. Okay, now this is what I was telling you about with the Superman merry-go-round. So Superman gets the wax statue of Clark and puts it on the right to fool Lois. Plausible. That would be understandable. However, this is a stiff wax statue. The wax statue is in a position where it's basically just Clark Kent standing straight up. Arms at the sides, not in a sitting position, nothing can move. So when Superman takes this statue over to the right, he literally lays it on top of the Superman seat thing. Therefore, basically, it looks like Clark's uh, laying on it with his arms at his side, which would not look realistic at all, and even with the art, it's pretty clear that it's fake. But when the right's over, he's sitting on it as if he was on a horse, you know? and holding the pole and all that stuff. So it's like, apparently, Lois and Jimmy were kind of blind at the time as well. I don't know. Um, then again, the Superman he, he was riding on has also put its arm up in between putting the statue on it and Clark finishing the ride sitting on it. So who knows what's going on. Overall, though, uh, for all the guff I've just given it, this was a pretty enjoyable story, and I was pretty impressed with it, considering I'm not a huge fan of the Silver Age stuff. Uh, some of the dialogue was a little weird, uh, because they had to describe everything as if no one had ever read a Superman comic before, such as Lex uh, telling Superman, obviously you couldn't feel the kryptonite because I had it in a lead box, which blocks the rays of the kryptonite and stuff like that, so... You know, things you would know if you've read any issue before, but possibly wouldn't if you hadn't read one before. Um, and while I'm not a huge fan of Wayne Boring's art, this is probably the best I've ever seen it. Uh, I did like some of his stuff in the Golden Age when he was part of the Schuster Studio, but this is probably the best I've seen. So after that story, uh, we have... A page where Kurt Swan shows how you draw Superman. Now, most of the Superman heads on this page, which basically gives you an idea of what Superman looks like at different angles and with different expressions, uh, the inked ones look like they've been inked by Murphy Anderson, but uh, the only credit on this page is that this is Kurt Swan drawing it, so I'm not completely sure. Uh, but judging by the ink style and what I've seen of Kurt Swan's ink style on uh, the few times he's inked his own work, it's Murphy Anderson. The next page is an image by Kurt Swan and George Klein of the Superman family that was reprinted from Superman Annual Number 6, including everyone from the Legion of Superheroes down to Beppo the Super Monkey. It's got everyone. Also on this page is a map showing how Superman, Supergirl, and Crypto got to Earth from Krypton, which was actually reprinted from Superman Annual number 2. Both are in black and white because just about everything in this book is black and white. Now, I should note, it, note that each of the, the, the two... Well, there's comic pages and then there's two full comic stories that are reprinted in this book. And for the most part, the comic stuff is repaint, almost like painted. So it's not just black and white line art. So that's really cool. It kind of gives it a more polished look, to, if you ask me. All right, uh, let's see. So that was the Superman family and the map. Next up is a 10-page article. 
showing you how a comic is created, complete, with photos of various creators working on each of the various stages of comic creation. And in this you see Danny O'Neill typing up a script, and which is interesting because the issue they're showing uh, Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson drawing it was a Carrie Bates story. But we have Denny, you see Denny O'Neill typing up a script, you see Kurt Swan drawing a page, you see Murphy Anderson inking a page. You see Kurt talking to Julie Schwartz about a page and making some touch-ups. You see people doing, uh, you see Jack Adler painting a cover. You see people doing lettering and lettering corrections and doing other kinds of corrections and getting the plates ready and printing and the copies and everything. You get a picture of every step. It's really cool and if you haven't seen it I suggest you check that out if you can find it. Next is the other big reason I'm covering this issue. The origin of Superman. Which I will get to after this. Superman of the Bronze Age will be back after these messages. Answering this question, what does great justice mean to you? Great justice means winning all the internets. Pirates beating ninja. Death to those who deserve it. The bad guys always get the fangirls. <laughs> That's a great injustice. Free cosplay everywhere. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. The right people getting the right things. Free popsicles and licorice for life. <laughs> Find the meaning for yourself at Henshin Justice Unlimited. Tokusatsu, anime, Power Rangers, video games, and all manner of things geek. All gathered in one place. www.henshinjustice.com I guess you weren't so tough after all, were you? Now it's time to send you to the next dimension. 291 original episodes. It's still going up! 325 monster chapters. You act innocent, but you're deadly. Time to die! Dozens of characters, hundreds of enemies, and a whole lot of violence. That kind of violence is pointless! You see, Super Saiyans tend to be a bit violent. Oh, crap! Join hosts Donovan and Jesse as they cover the arrival of the Saiyans, the journey to Namek, the battle with Frieza, the mystery of the androids, and the terror of Majin Buu. The Next Dimension, a Dragon Ball Z podcast. Join the fight at dbznextdimension.libson.com. See ya. Look, up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's supermanhomepage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. Supermanhomepage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. Supermanhomepage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the man of steel and more supermanhomepage.com hey folks sorry to interrupt the promo time but i just wanted to pop in here and ask you to visit our sponsor for this episode in stock trades in stock trades offers great discounts on trades graphic novels and hardcovers here's an example of what i'm talking about 
may have Superman Returns, the movie, and other tales of the Man of Steel, which reprints the origin story from Amazing World of Superman in full color. The normal cover price on this book is $12.99, but thanks to in-stock trade's 40% discount, you can buy it today for just $7.79. So make sure you check out InStockTrades.com and help support the show. And remember, shipping is free on orders over $50. And now, back to the show. We now return to Superman and the Bronze Age. Alright, The Origin of Superman. Written by E. Nelson Bridwell. Laid out by Carmine Infantino. Which is fun to say that way. You have to try it. Um, penciled by Kurt Swan. Inked by Murphy Anderson. With letters by Gaspar Saladino. And I'm guessing that's how you say it. Now this guy, i got to tell you. I don't. I haven't had much opportunity to mention letterers, but this guy's been around for a while. He's one of the ones that has done a lot of lettering as far as the covers on the comics, and he has done such momentous things as well lettering this story. He's lettered. Uh, he lettered the first time Superman and the Amazing Spider-Man met each other. He lettered the other origin of Superman I'm going to cover next issue or next episode issue sode, however you want to look at it uh, and then he I know for a fact he also lettered The Flash for a really long time, most of Mark Wade's run and a good portion of Jeff Johns' run as well so this guy's got some pretty good longevity but anyway, this story starts off with a big splash page which has Superman standing there with his cape blowing in the wind, which is hard to do because it's in, he's standing in space. And we see Krypton exploding with the rocket flying away, and Krypton has an image of Jor-El and Lara, his parents, uh, watching as the rocket leaves. And the caption says, Who is Superman? Where did he come from? How did he, how did he obtain the miraculous powers that caused the world to gasp in awe? Here, at last, are the answers. The incredible story of the origin of Superman. Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. Everyone knows of these and other powers of the Man of Steel, but how did he acquire his super abilities? For the answer, we must look not on Earth, but far out in the vast reaches of space. Years ago, the giant planet Krypton revolved around a great red sun. Krypton was inhabited by a highly intelligent civilization. Among its foremost citizens were scientist Jor-El and his wife Lara. The scientists of Krypton had studied many distant worlds, including Earth. But the time came when Krypton was shaken by mysterious rumblings. And in the Hall of Wisdom, the ruling science council awaited an announcement from one of its members. In the Hall of Wisdom, Jor-El tells his fellow scientists that Krypton is doomed, as proven by the recent quakes. Internal stresses deep within the planet have caused instability in Krypton's core, which will soon cause the planet to explode. While they don't believe the young scientist, the other members of the Council humor him by asking him what he plans to do about Krypton's destruction. When he suggests building giant space arcs to take the population of Krypton to Earth, the others just tell him that he's been frightened by a few minor quakes, 
And then they accuse him of wanting to send everyone away so that he could take over the government to rule for himself. Angry and frustrated, Jorel hurries home to his wife, Lara, and son, Cal, determined to continue his rocket experiments so that he can at least save his family. Months later, Jorel's prophecy becomes a reality. Unfortunately, Jorel's only been able to complete a model rocket, which should be big enough for his wife and son, but Lara refuses to leave Jorel's side. So they place little Cal in the rocket and launch it as the world crumbles around them. Soon, the pitifully small rocket makes its way to space as the planet explodes. Thanks to the special warp drive invented by Jorel, the rocket makes it to Earth in a relatively short amount of time. It soon lands near a small town, where it is discovered by a pair of passing motorists, Jonathan and Martha Kent. Investigating the rocket, Jonathan finds that there's a child inside. Loading the rocket into the bed of their pickup, the Kents take young Kalel to the Smallville Orphanage with the story that they just happened to find this abandoned baby. They then request to adopt him, but are told that all applicants are investigated very carefully. So while the investigation begins, the Kents work to hide the rocket, and the child displays some incredible abilities at the orphanage, such as lifting a doctor, breaking toys in his bare hands, breaking needles on his skin, and repeatedly and mysteriously being found hanging from the chandelier. So when the Kents return, they're permitted to adopt the child. With good riddance. So they decide to give him Martha's maiden name and call him Clark Kent. Over the next few years, the Kents slowly deliver the liver. Over the next few years, the Kents slowly discover Clark's strange powers, and in time, Clark adopts his Superboy identity so that he can use his powers to be a force for good. But upon graduating high school, both of his foster parents become gravely ill. Soon, Martha passes away, and while Jonathan lays on his deathbed, Clark promises to continue to use his powers for good. Now orphaned for the second time, Clark has the Kents buried in their own backyard. He then moves to Metropolis to attend college, but secretly returns so that he can make a second departure as Superboy. As he flies over the town park, he sees that the citizens have positioned themselves to form the message, Farewell, Superboy, we'll never forget you. Now determined to find a special way to say goodbye to them, Superboy builds a giant oven and bakes a giant super cake, which is big enough for everyone in town to have a slice. However, most people don't eat the cake, choosing instead to save their slice as a souvenir. In fact, there are still hundreds of pieces saved in Smallville to this day. After graduating college, Clark gets a job at the Daily Planet, where he befriends Lois Lane, Jimmy Olsen, and his editor, Perry White. At last, to reward him for all of his super deeds over the years, the member nations of the UN vote, to vote him honorary citizenship in all of their countries. And every day, as the odd citizens of Metropolis gaze up to see a red and blue form streaking through the sky, you can still hear the familiar call, Up in the sky! Look! It's a bird! It's a plane! It's Superman! Okay, now before I get to my page-by-page notes, I just want to say that the art on this story is phenomenal. I'm guessing part of it is due to the higher print quality, due to printing it on the special tabloid, and 
in black and white, but the art just looks crisp and beautiful. In fact, Kurt Swan has said that this is his favorite of his of the works that he himself has drawn. So that's got to tell you something right there. Page three, uh, we see Swan's interpretation of the Kryptonian clothing. And it's much more ornate this time than what we usually see. Usually we, I mean, the headband's still there, but usually we get basically a pretty tight, basic uniform that looks somewhat similar to su the Superman costume, but, you know, with a higher collar maybe, which I guess looks like the current Superman costume. But in any event, they they got rid of the cape way back. And now this time we see, like, for example, Jarrell's top alone has three different layers. Uh, there's a long sleeve, there's a short sleeve above it, and then it looks like some almost like a chest plate armor, but it's actually cloth. It's kind of weird to explain. Plus, there's a cape, which seems to have a large metal clasp. Uh, well, I'm guessing metal, but it's a large clasp in the front. So he's got the cape back, plus three layers. Hopefully he doesn't get hot. But it's not just him, either. At least all of the members of the Science Council appear to wear the same style of clothing. Now, we don't actually get to see anyone other than Lara, so I don't know if other people wear the same style of clothing, but at least the Science Council does. Now, page 10, we get a scene that is a little different. Um, we get the Kens putting the rocket in the truck bed and taking it with them into Smallville. Now, first of all, this is a retcon that later actually gets re-retconned back to the or the older version. It's a mess. Basically, most versions of this story involve the rocket actually exploding, and either the baby Kal-El is either thrown from the rocket as it lands, or the explosion throws him from the rocket. In this instance, the rocket doesn't explode. So that's a change. Also, regardless of, ha of what happens to the rocket, Jonathan and Martha just put this rocket on the truck bed and drive into town. There's no tarp or anything covering it. Now, I know it's a small town, but I would think that a, a I guess, middle-aged couple at this point a middle-aged couple and an old truck um, with a large, shiny, blue, futuristic-looking rocket sitting in the truck bed would probably raise a few eyebrows and garner some attention. That's just me. Uh, let's see. Page 10 and 11. We get to see, you know, I mentioned it earlier with the baby causing a ruckus at the orphanage. Now, this is not something that we could see happen these days. Because these days, with in, an, in the era of smartphones and the internet, video of the Super Baby would most likely be spotted on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and other sites uh, before Jonathan Kent could even turn the truck around. So, you know. Uh, let's see. Now, page 14. First of all, we have another retcon that I believe gets re-retconned again later. Uh, in this story, Jonathan and Martha are buried in the backyard of their house. And in other tellings of the story, 
they're buried at the Smallville Cemetery. In fact, this does get ignored in a later story, or in several later stories, in which we actually see them buried at the cemetery. So, I don't know if this was just to ease things. Now, apparently from what I've heard, now that I think about it, and I'm throwing this in off the cuff, these changes were made to go with the proposed Superman theme park I was telling you about. I guess the rocket is supposed was supposed to be on display, maybe? And part of the Smallville thing was that you were supposed to see the Kent house and then see the graves in the backyard because they couldn't didn't, wouldn't have had enough room to recreate a whole Smallville cemetery because that's also kind of uh, dark and weird. So they put it in the backyard so that when you went to the actual park, you could actually see their graves in the backyard. And I just remembered that. So that's why that was done. It's been re- it's been retconned later since, you know, the park didn't get built. Also on page 14, we see when we see Clark uh not Clark, well, technically Clark, but Superboy uh bringing the super cake to the city of small or to the town of Smallville. I just thought it was kind of interesting that uh Superboy felt the need to wear a chef's hat because, you know, you got to Make sure you have a hat when you're a chef. And then um, that's pretty much it. The last panel on page 15 is pretty iconic with the it's a bird, it's a plane, it's Superman with Superman flying over through the sky. Uh, it's kind of interesting that the caption says it's a red and blue form when this is black and white, so it's basically gray and black and white. But yeah, it's a really cool story. Um, Overall, I thought this was a pretty good summary of Superman's origins. I noted that there were some changes, but uh, like I said, I believe those two, those couple of changes were actually made to fit in with the idea for the park. It's possible the Kryptonian outfit could also have been changed to go with the designs that they were coming up with for the park. I'm not completely sure. Um, however, due to the page length, there were some things that had to be excluded from this telling of the origin. We don't get any mention of Crypto or Supergirl. Uh, there's no mention of Clark now working at WGBS, despite the fact this was published probably about two years after that happened. Uh, there's no mention of the origin of Superman's costume, which is usually put in just about all the retellings, regardless of page size. Um, but, you know, this was just supposed to cover the basics, so it works pretty well. And if you're someone that's not super familiar with the Superman legend, this really is all you need to know. As for reprints, chances are if you're listening to this show, you've probably read this story at some point. Uh, this story has been reprinted in limited collector's edition C31, which was from October, November 1974, which of course put it in full color. It was reprinted in The Secret Origins of the Super, of the Super DC Heroes from 1976. It was reprinted in The Great Superman Comic Book Collection from 1981. It was reprinted in both Superman of the thir- from the 30s to the 70s and 30s to the 80s. It was reprinted in Superman Returns, the movie and other tales of the Man of Steel from 2006. It was reprinted in the Superman Through the Ages trade paperback from 2007. And there's probably more. That's just all I've been able to find so far. So, uh, next, after that, 
is some more articles. Uh, let's see. Next week, actually, next we get a pull-out map in full color, reprinted from Superman number 239, um, which is actually pretty big, and lots of yellow was used. Then we get a page titled Superman Syndicated, which shows off some of the Superman newspaper strips. And for more on Superman newspaper strips, I suggest you check out Thrilling Adventures of Superman by Michael Bradley and Golden Age Superman by John Wilson, as they actually cover these uh, newspaper strip stories in detail. This uh, little page actually reprints only five of these strips, which, considering that this strip went on for several uh, for a few decades, um, you can imagine they skipped a few. Uh, three of them. Are, pr- are reprinted from 1940 to show you some Golden Age goodness, and two are printed from 1955 to show you some Silver Age zaniness. Then you get a four-page article about the history of Metropolis, Illinois, which also talks about the big event when DC officially declared it the home of Superman, including the fact that they got a reverend to portray Superman and he wore the actual costume worn by George Reeves in the Super- Adventures of Superman TV show. A little bit of trivia for you. The next two pages feature Superman's rogues gallery. And featured here are Lex Luthor, Brainiac, Toy Man, Parasite, Puzzler, Prankster, Mr. Mixias Pitalik, and the Phantom Zone villains Jaxer, Cruel, General Zod, and Professor Vacox. There's a lot of Guys, not many women, is there? Hmm. Anyway, next is a two-page cutaway shot of Superman's Fortress, which was reprinted from Action Comics 395, showing all the various rooms, including the secret room that that story actually told the story of, which... That would have been episode two of this show, and there is a... There is an image at the show posting, so I suggest, if you want to see it, you can check that out at Superman and the bronzeage.com. Next, there was a two-page feature about the Superman musical It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman uh, reprinted from a New York Times article. And then the second page is basically a bunch of pictures showing some of the stuff on stage, including Superman himself. Uh, Then there is a one-page article about Superman and NASA, talking about uh, what Superman how NASA helped with the story Superman and the Sky Scorchers from Action Comics want to say 417 off the top of my head uh, the first one edited by Julie Schwartz and uh, I believe J. David Weider was on the show to help me cover that one so I have covered it so you can go back and check that um, next up is a one page feature showcasing the important dates in Superman's life and since it doesn't go up to 1980 my birth is not included then again, I don't see anything about Billy Hogan or Scott Garner either, so obviously they're skipping some things. Next is an article about the story Superman's Mission for President Kennedy. Now, unlike the other two, the other comic pages, this one they don't do the repainted coloring, but it, uh, yeah, you know, painting it in black and white. But they do tell about how they had originally started it, then the president died, so they pulled the story, and then the new president, Lyndon Johnson, and the Kennedy family thought that the program that President Kennedy had started was too good, was too important to not support, so they went ahead and printed the story anyway, and they show you two different pages from the story. 
Uh, next is a three-page story about Superboy secrets. Uh, the, the first two pages are basically uh, a cutaway of the Kent home and some of the other secrets that Superboy has, and those were reprinted from Superboy 153. And the third page is the attic of the Kent home and is reprinted from Superboy 161. Then we get two pages about the origin of Superboy's costume from Superboy 169. And of course these pages are helpful because those are things that were not covered in the Superman origin story. Next we get Superman's photo album. Uh, and this is basically three pages of photos uh, and pictures from comics. There's a Christmas card. There's photos from the Adventures of Superman show and a pic from one of the movie serials and there's a couple of page of images from of PSAs that were reprinted and movie posters which I thought were interesting apparently back in 50, 1954 15 episodes of the Adventures of Superman show were put together and repackaged as five movies and then of course since they were movies they had these movie posters created to help promote them I did not know about that so I found this to be pretty interesting information 40 years later. Finally, we get a full-page image of Superman by Kurt Swan and George Klein, where he's getting struck by lightning. Not once, but in two different places. It's pretty dynamic for 1960-something, but it's kind of eh for these days. And that brings us to the end of the issue. But like I mentioned, we're not finished yet. Oh, no. And after I play a quick promo, J. David Weeder comes on with our backup feature, Superboy in the Bronze Age. Superman in the Bronze Age will be back after these messages. The Hulk on Podcasts. Hulk like podcasts. Hulk listen to podcasts while Hulk smash. The Hulk on Peter David. Hulk like to read Peter David comics. Hulk has problem making words. Hulk, write down. Peter David wrote a seminal run on the Incredible Hulk for 12 years. Some of the most provocative, compelling stories came from this era, filled with striking psychological overtones, bold character developments, and sharp humor. Along with artists like Todd McFarlane, Dale Keown, and Gary Frank, Peter David took the Incredible Hulk and the comic book medium as a whole to new heights. The Hulk on... Peter David Podcasts. Uh, Hulk not find Peter David Podcasts. Hulk get mad. Hulk smash! Hey folks, in order to appease the rampaging Hulk, there is an Incredible Hulk podcast devoted to Peter David. Pad Smash, an Incredible Hulk podcast, looks at the entire Peter David run on the Hulk, issue by issue in a bi-weekly format. Join me, J. David Weeder, on a journey through the saga of old J. Jaws at www.incrediblehulksmash.com. Incredible Hulk and all related characters copyright Marvel Comics. Pad Smash is not responsible for gamma radiation sickness, smashed MP3 players, overturned vehicles, tanks thrown through the ceiling, injured supervillains on the lawn, gamma bomb detonations, property damage from debris, Deep-rooted psychological damages as a result of intense child abuse resulting in an alternate self-destructive personality with the strength of an atom bomb or anal leakage. We 
We now return to Superman and the Bronze Age. The Adventures of Superboy. Exciting stories of Superman when he was a boy, who even as an infant demonstrated powers and abilities far beyond the capabilities of Earthlings. Superboy, who as Clark Kent, mild-mannered foster son of Martha and Jonathan Kent, preserves the secret of his true identity and devotes his superpowers to the prevention of crime, the preservation of peace, and the pursuit of truth. Hello, I'm J. David Weeder, and I am proud to bring you my new segment on Superman in the Bronze Age, Superboy in the Bronze Age. And this will look at randomly pulled Superboy stories from 1970 to 1986, right around Crisis on Infinite Earths. Now, you may remember that I very briefly had a show called The Smallville Chronicles that looked at Superboy from a chronological perspective, beginning with the Golden Age. And then the show, well, it went away. And the main reason was the Superboy from this era, that is my jam. I've always been a Superboy fan. I was a Superboy fan before I was a Superman fan because as a kid, well, I related. It was kind of the fantasy, wasn't it? And hey, he had a flying dog. How awesome is that? I love Crypto. I love Pa owning the general store along with Ma. I love the Legion of Superheroes dropping in from time to time. So I realized that I had to do this segment. And I just decided to dig in and have fun. Now, I've I've decided to forgo the origin. We all know the super baby landed on Earth, lived with Mom and Pa Kent, grew up to be Superman. Exploding planet Krypton, all that. So really what we're going to do is we're going to jump into some stories here and there, explaining things as we go as we come across characters. And that's the basic setup for this segment. So why don't we look at a completely randomly selected Superboy story Now, to start us off, I chose The Menace of the Mechanical Master from Superman Family 193, which was cover dated January, February 1979. It clearly says February on the cover. It would have actually been on sale October 9th of 1978. So, ten days before my first birthday. Aww. Now, this is actually a pretty cool concept. Superman Family was a... uh, It was an ensemble book. Yeah, so you'd see various characters connected to Superman, including, as we can see, Superboy, Supergirl, Nightwing, and Flamebird, as we're going to mention. And for 64 pages, you paid $1. Imagine that. Now, the whole thing as a, as a group was edited by the E. Nelson Bridwell, who we talk about quite a bit. The cover penciler was Ross Andrew, inked by Dick Giordano. So two greats right there. Now, the cover itself... Obviously, there's it's a hodgepodge. There's a lot of things, but Superboy dominates the front cover. It's actually a wraparound cover, and he's fighting what looks to be a car, as his, his super dog, Crypto, goes after a man in an orange and green jumpsuit. And since this is the Superman family, we also see Lois Lane in a nurse's outfit fighting some crooks that look like they were basically kicked out of a low-rent version of the Hellfire Club. Nightwing and Flamebird are fighting. Supergirl punches a shark, which is a level of awesome I'm not prepared for. And Superman, as a ghost, is seeing that Supergirl isn't Kara, but rather his mother, Lara. What goes on there? And Jimmy Olsen and Speedy of the Teen Titans discover the Guardian in basically a back-to-tank. Now, we won't be looking at any of the other stories, because this is Superboy in the Bronze Age. So our story actually opens the book. And it is 12 pages, written by Tom DeFalco, art by Joe Staten, lettered by Carisha is what it shows in the book. It also comes up as Karen Kish when I look it up online. And called colored by Gene D'Angelo. Now, the tale opens with Superboy in space, along with Crypto, 
and Superboy is blowing off some steam by using a meteor storm to create, basically, a baseball bat and baseballs, which he is knocking into the stars so Crypto can chase them. And he mentions that he would love to join his school's baseball team, but his powers give him an unfair advantage. But it grows time to cut the play session short, because Clark Kent is due in class. So Superboy leaves his companion to, in space to frolic. Elsewhere, in the town of Centerville, a postman comes upon a city mailbox. But there shouldn't be one in this location. He doesn't get to process it very long, because it comes to life, it being the mailbox, and starts rolling like R2-D2, and then it crashes into the bank, right into the vault, basically pops out a vacuum hose with an attachment, sucks all the money out of the reserves, and as the police are firing, it flies out like a rocket through the bank's roof, and behind leaves a, a sky-written message, Best wishes to all, the mechanical master. And the news of the robbery gets to Smallville's chief of police, Douglas Parker, and he orders the deputy to warn Superboy. So the deputy pushes the special button, and in the Kent house, a specific lamp begins blinking. Back at Smallville High, Lana Lang tries to convince Clark to help her in her campaign for class president, which he really isn't too into. He really declines. But they have an annoying teacher, Miss Snaith, who seems to really annoy Clark and get under his skin. She's really talking down to them. And just to spite her, he changes her mind, and he's going to help Lana. Elsewhere, in a hidden lair, well, is there any other kind? Mechanical Master, an older man with a bald head and big silver mustache wearing an orange and green jumpsuit that really he shouldn't be wearing, is planning his next job, to hit Smallville. His minion, who will later find out his name, Martin, pleads to avoid Smallville since, well, it's the home of Superboy and they'll get slaughtered. After all, all the heists they pulled, they've got a nice little nest egg. Mechanical Master really isn't worried too much about Superboy, plus his little gimmicks like that marauding mailbox are expensive, so they actually do need the money. But the next job will solve that, and uh, the Smallville Electronics Company gets a special delivery, which is a giant phone that rings so loud that it pretty much bursts the eardrums of everyone working there. The news of the disturbance spreads across the radio, and Clark hears of the disturbance as he and his best friend Pete Ross are working on Lana's campaign posters. Now, Pete knows that Clark is Superboy, having seen him change on a camping trip, but Clark doesn't know that Pete is aware of his secret. So Pete kind of injures himself by hitting his own finger with the hammer and decides that he has to leave. So this allows Clark to change into Superboy. And the Boy of Steel takes off from Smallville High and quickly gets to the Mechanical Master's lair as the villain is looking down over his new loot. But as Superboy captures him, Mechanical Master activates a hidden device, a car that springs to life with a monstrous mechanical face on its undercarriage, and the car begins running around town, tearing the place up, chasing people, dogs and cats living together, so Superboy must rush off and save the day, leaving the Mechanical Master. He does so by picking up the pavement underneath the car and flying the concrete and the car on top to Lake Smallville and dumping them in. Then he uses the secret trap door in the woods, which has an underground tunnel to the kid household, to grab some Superboy robot reinforcements. But the robots are acting up due to atmospheric conditions, so Superboy must face the villain alone. If only he had a super-powered friend to help. And then the Boy of Steel realizes that he does have one. But before we learn who, we flash to Smallville High the next morning, where two school hooligans are defacing one of Lana's posters. Clark applies a bit of heat vision to their spray paint can, making it explode on the vandals, so they get covered in paint. 
This just cracks Clark up. He's laughing hysterically when Lana finds him and asks him to introduce her at the school assembly for the presidential campaign. But this interferes with Clark's plan to duel the mechanical master. Oh, no. Oh, calamity. In his backup lair, the mechanical master and his minion, Martin, work on a plan to get revenge on Superboy by building a giant pair of mixer whisks. The whisks hit town and blow up a twister accompanied by a flying fire hydrant, which spews water all over town and causing floods. See? Double jeopardy. So Superboy is distracted. Now this lets Mechanical Master raid the jewelry exchange. As Lana prepares to give her speech at the high school and notices that Clark isn't present. See how that all comes up to a crescendo? No, Superboy is out using copper tubing to suck up all of the flood water. But what about the tornado? Well, there's no time for that, apparently, because Superboy rushes to the jewelry exchange where the Mechanical Master surrenders, knowing he's caught. But not all is what it seems. It's C. Superboy recruited Crypto to deal with the Whisks, allowing them to bypass the Mechanical Master's two-pronged attack scenario. And Superboy whisks the villain off to jail, see the pun there, and uses, wait for it, Super Ventriloquism to announce Lana at the high school making it appear that Clark is off stage using a microphone. And the day is saved, so Crypto and Superboy fly back towards space to play with some more meteors. The end. So let's go page by page, starting with pages 1 and 2. Superboy and Crypto playing this awesome game of baseball in space with meteors. That was one of the biggest things that jumped out at me was I was going through stories to see which one I would start with, it, it was just this feeling of whimsy that this boy's life happens to be on a scale so far beyond the normal kids that we would never in a million years get to touch it, which is part of the draw. He's relatable, but he's on a scale that we're not at as kids. I'm not a kid now, but it was when I read some of these. I mean, it's look at it. I mean, a boy and his dog playing baseball. That's Americana. That's Norman Rockwell. And this is that on crack. Now, next up comes page three. First of all, I like the sky writing. I like the manners he uses. Best wishes to all is so much kinder than Surrender Dorothy. And if you remember, Magneto did this trick in the first issue of X-Men. And I was just as charmed by it as I am now. Such a sweet thing to do for a criminal. And we also meet Chief Douglas Parker. Now, Parker first appeared in Adventure Comics 225. He was actually preceded by two similar characters, Chief Bran and Chief Wilkins. Now, Parker is a pretty straightforward part of the Smallville supporting cast of characters. Clearly, he's the chief of police. You know, he brings Superboy in on cases. It's pretty straightforward. Now, I want to continue that thought about Parker to page four. Because the flickering lamp has been the standard signal letting Superboy know that he's needed. And, I mean, it's basically like the bat signal. Parker is one of three people to have access to a Superboy switch. One of the other ones is the President of the United States, and the third is Professor Lewis Lang, who is father of Lana Lang, who we also see on this page. Now, Lana made her first appearance in Superboy number 10 way back in 1950. She's, I mean, to be honest, basically a red-haired younger version of Lois Lane, constantly trying to prove that Clark is Superboy. And I don't want a misunderstanding. Don't mistake me saying she's a younger Lois Lane as dismissing the character. Not at all. She's a great analog to Lois Lane, but still stands on her own two feet, as we're going to see down the road. And she also makes a great addition to the Superman supporting cast, kind of really throwing that love triangle for a loop. 
And we also meet Mechanical Master himself, whose name is obviously a reference to the Mechanical Monsters, which is a Superman cartoon from the Fleischer Brothers series, which is wonderful. It's where he fights the giant robots. Now, he doesn't make any more appearances that I can find after this one. He doesn't even rank an entry in the Essential Superman Encyclopedia, which means this guy doesn't really rank. And let's be honest, I think we can live without him. He's not a particularly original or exciting villain. I mean, he looks like Wilfred Brimley cosplaying as Dr. Druid from Marvel. And his minion, Martin, looks like he just got kicked out of Bruce Banner Fashion School because he wears this basic purple jumpsuit. Now, Mechanical Master, I mean, he's your run-of-the-mill mad scientist, so he can easily be replaced. Now, let me continue that thought process to page 5. The Giant Telephone. I immediately thought of the Joker. It just reeks of the Joker. Big props that do bad things. Come on. Now, that's not a bad thing, because it's a good gimmick. And it is a gimmick, because even Mechanical Master calls his stuff a gimmick. Now, the main thing on this page is we meet Pete Ross. Now, most of what I want to say brings us to page 6, because Pete Ross knows Superboy's identity. Now, Superboy not knowing, I love. I love this setup. Now, the camping trip in question, just for chronology, actually took place in Superboy number 90. Now, Pete made his first appearance four issues earlier in Superboy number 86. Now, Pete is constantly trying to help his friend out, which I think is great, because Superboy is none the wiser. Now, that's way more fun than having it out on the table, you know, turning, oh, gee, Clark, maybe you should turn to Superboy, I'll cause a distraction, because the audience is in on a joke that no one else is. Not even, in some ways, Pete's not even in on it. So we get a nice little laugh. I also want to note on this page, there is a standout panel. It's panel four, which has Superboy rising into the air over Smallville High School, which is a good time to talk about the art. I really wish I could get this this panel as a pinup. Wish my Photoshop skills were a little bit better so I could remove the balloons. Now, as far as the art, I became familiar with Joe Staten through Green Lantern. But his Superboy has all the sharpness of Burned Superman or Jim Lee's rendition of Superboy. Looking at him, Staten was very much ahead of his time in the way that he built his figures. They're very clean, very straightforward, and we're kind of getting into that Jose Garcia Lopez level of art that I love. Of course, Dick Giordano did the cover, so I put those three kind of in the same category. I like their art. It's not overly stylized. It's very straightforward in a very, very, very good way. It's clean. It's I don't want to use the word basic, but it's standard in a good way. Now, my next note actually takes up a couple of pages. Pages 7 and 8. The attacking car... I immediately thought of a lot of things. Um, the first thing was Hot Wheels. And one of the other things was the cab from Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Because the car is up on t two wheels, terrorizing. But mainly, I feel like I've had this toy, or a toy similar to this. I'm convinced it. It's some sort of car that had a monster face on the car's undercarriage, and I actually remember the mechanism lifting the car up. But, not really a big point. Uh, then on page 9, I love Clark getting the best of the vandals. It makes me think of Steve Lombard. It's hilarious. Really, that's all there is to say. I like the humor in that. And then on page 10, how does a pair of whisks... Now, these things are just like what you'd see on a standard bakery mixer. So how did these things create a tornado? It doesn't necessarily work that way. They don't push wind. It just doesn't work like that. Now, it's fun. 
don't get me wrong, so I can kind of let it go, which is kind of the theme of what I'll say, but it, it just doesn't work like that. And kind of looking at another logic problem on page 11, how does the flying hydrant carry enough water to flood the city? Proportionately, the hydrant's, you know, larger than a normal hydrant, but the supply area just isn't big enough. And then we have Superboy drinking the water because his metabolism can vaporize it faster than it can spit out. I bet he had to pee something fierce, though. I know he's saying it's vaporizing. It doesn't, you know, really work like that. And kind of bringing us in for a landing, page 12, Superboy uses superventriloquism, which made me forget all about the logic problems I just mentioned. And I decided, oh, this story is too fun. I just got caught up in it, right? And really went back over and enjoyed it, enjoyed it more the second time. I mean, let's be honest. DeFalco's a great writer. He's had a long career. He's very storied. He's a consummate storyteller. And he kept all the story elements balanced, including a save from Crypto, who, I love this panel, enjoys chasing the Blades of the Whisk more than chasing asteroids. So he's having a blast with this. And clearly the Mechanical Master was a one-time villain, a bit over the hill. And it was kind of a stock-mad scientist tell... But I still had a lot of fun reading this, which is kind of the point. And we got a lot of Superboy's great bits in it. The tunnel that he built so he can come and go from the Kent house and not get noticed. The flickering lamp. It had almost everything I like to see in a Superboy story. He's not stocking the shelves of the general store, which is maybe the biggest element missing. But it really, if you're looking around, it makes this book a great buy. And I'm not even factoring in all the other feature stories built in. 64 pages was a dollar. I bet you can probably find this in a 50 cent bin. And I'm really glad I chose this. This is a great place to start because fun should always be a part of reading comics and especially with Superboy. I always equate him with fun. And so, almost out of time. Great issue. And that uh, wraps up Superboy in the Bronze Age. I am J. David Weeder, and I'm going to hand you back to Mr. Charlie Niemeyer. And that about wraps things up for this episode. I want to thank everyone for downloading, and we all, we hope you enjoyed the show. If you have any thoughts or opinions about the new plans for the show, please feel free to write in at superbronze1970 at gmail.com. Uh, you can also uh, go on to Facebook. We're there. And you could post comments about the show. You can also post comments on the show posting at supermanandthebronzeage.com. Uh, so thanks again for listening. I'm Charlie Niemeyer, and I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Superman of the Bronze Age, hosted by Charlie Niemeyer. The home of the show is at www.supermanofthebronzeage.com, where you will find show postings, links to the RSS and iTunes feeds, and more. You can also find the show on Facebook, where you'll get a little notice whenever a new episode is posted. Superman of the Bronze Age is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, which is at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. There you will find postings for this show, as well as many other Superman-related podcasts. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, and is copyright DC Comics. Thank you all for listening, and God bless. Superman.